You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is sponsored by Antioch University's Low Residency MFA program in creative writing. Want to learn how to write fiction, nonfiction, poetry, young adult, screenwriting, or playwriting in a two-year program that's mostly remote? Apply by visiting antioch.edu slash apply. Hi, my name is Julie Wong, and I wrote episode 1704, You'll Never Walk Alone, of Grey's Anatomy. Julie Wong spent more than a decade writing speeches and developing press conferences while serving as deputy mayor to Los Angeles Mayor Jim Hahn and leading communications for Senator Barbara Boxer and then LA City Council member Eric Garcetti, among others. She also served in multiple executive roles for Walt Disney Parks and Resorts, where she was involved with major initiatives, including the opening of Shanghai Disneyland and the announcement of Star Wars lands coming to Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Along the way, she realized she had her own stories to tell, too. Julie served as a co-producer on season 17 of Grey's Anatomy. She participated in the CAPE New Writers Fellowship and the CBS Writers Mentoring Program, and holds a degree in government from Claremont McKenna College and a Master of Public Policy from Harvard University. In Grey's Anatomy, episode 1704, You'll Never Walk Alone, Meredith, while hospitalized with COVID, dreams of seeing her friend George O'Malley, who died during their medical residency. Meanwhile, Owen's misdiagnosis of a patient challenges more than he imagined. An asymptomatic Karasik begins to go stir-crazy at home, and Maggie gets a not-so-subtle glimpse into Winston's background. I was working in politics, I was talking to my dad on the phone and we were kind of talking about life in general. And he asked me, you know, if you could do anything, have any job, what would it be? And, you know, I'm thinking like, well, I don't really want to move to DC. And I had already worked for a mayor. My boss was thinking about running for mayor. Do I really want to go back to the same job that I had before? And he said, no, no, no. I mean, any job. And I said, well, I would be a TV writer. And, you know, part of it was like, I just kind of threw it out there. My Chinese American engineer, risk averse dad said, Oh, well, why don't you do that then? And I was like, What? Who is on the other end of this phone? Where is my dad? What did you do with him? Whoa. Like he kind of called my bluff. I was like, Dad, I can't just quit my job. And he's like, You live in Los Angeles. There have to be classes that you can take. I think because it was coming from my dad, who is a very, you know, methodical, thoughtful person and doesn't just jump into things, I was like, huh, maybe I should look and see if there are classes. I actually had asked a friend who was a television writer whether she knew anything about them. And she's like, yeah, I know people who've taken them and really liked them. I actually attempted to sign up for the spec comedy class and it was fall. So, you know, I just signed up for the drama class that had space. I later asked my friend, like, oh, you know, I I signed up for drama. Like, I can always switch, right? They're they're basically the same. She was like, no, they're actually really different. Like, the formats of the script are different. The writer's rooms are really different. It turns out that I was in the right class. Like, I really love writing drama. I tend to write lighter drama. So it's, it's, you know, a little bit more comedic. But I, I know that that's the space where I belong. I learned from Joel Thompson how to write beats. I mean, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what beats were. I didn't know what an outline looked like. And I had even read some scripts because I just had an interest in that. But 
I didn't know anything about how things are structured, what an act break was called. So I started from the beginning. I took one class just to see if I liked it. And I did. I mean, I liked it so much that I was getting up really early before work to read scripts and to, you know, figure out which, you know, which show I wanted to spec. And then of course, you know, you end that first class with an outline. Well, now I have to take the second class and write a script because that seems really fun too. And so I signed up for Joel's second class and then, you know, you finish that and now you're like, well, I think I want to write a pilot. (laughs) And it turned out that Joel Thompson was teaching the pilot class. And I really loved having him as my teacher for the first two classes. And then the next thing I knew, I was halfway to the certificate. Now I might as well take three more classes. (laughs) And all of them were really useful for different reasons. With the pilot that I wrote in the pilot class, I entered UCLA Extension's writing competition and was lucky enough to place in the top three. And when that happens, you get assigned a mentor. And it was the first time that I really got to work, you know, very closely one-on-one, getting notes back on this script, you know, outside of the class, obviously. I got to practice taking notes and then revising. And also when I completed their certificate program, one of the benefits of that is that you get a one-on-one consultation with the mentor of your choice. And I chose Ricky Manning, who had been my mentor when I had placed in the UCLA extension writing competition. The script that he helped me with and noted for me as part of that consultation is the sample that got me staffed on Grey's Anatomy. I feel like UCLA Extension was a great place for me to learn. I'm still friends with people who I took those early classes with that are writing. You know, many of us are staffed on shows now. They're people that I kind of grew up with as a writer. I'm still growing up with as a writer. And I'm really grateful to UCLA for giving me that start. During non-COVID times, I really like to write in my office, usually with a white noise machine on to drown out some of the sound. But I like being on the studio a lot. It kind of just puts me in the mindset of this is my time to write. Even on the weekends, I would drive to the studio and I would sit in the writer's room by myself and I would curl up on a couch with my laptop and write scenes. But with this episode, I was at home. So I tried writing it in various places. And the place that worked the best for me was on the couch, laying down with my laptop on a little stand. It was very comfortable. And I could just dive in. I got hired as a staff writer for season 14 of Grey's Anatomy. That is 13 seasons of a show that in some years, they did 27 episodes, I think, in season two. I mean, these, they were not short seasons. I had 293 episodes to catch up on when I was hired for this show. And I had not watched Grey's Anatomy as a viewer. So I was really starting from nothing. I remember my first day in the room, you're already nervous. You're a staff writer. I didn't know anybody in that writer's room we kind of went around the room and were asked to pitch and I pitched an idea for a medical case that Krista immediately said, oh, we did that in a previous season. And I was like, oh boy, I really have a lot to catch up on here. But moreover, I really wanted to watch all of the episodes to get a feel for the characters. I had started you know, by watching season one and my plan was just to move all the way through. But then I quickly realized that 
I was going to walk into a writer's room and that most of the characters on the show were completely different. So if I was going to have any context for this conversation, I should probably skip. So I watched seasons one and two, and then I skipped to season 13 and watched that. And then I think I might've gone backwards and watched season 12. I had also read all of the synopsis, you know, thank goodness for the fans out there who had put together, you know, um, a whole amazing wiki. And I sort of caught up looking at that. And then, you know, I, I wanted to watch every episode because it really helps me understand the character's voice. Before becoming a television writer, I had worked in politics as a communications staffer, press secretary, communications director. So I was writing speeches for other people and really got used to very quickly being able to acclimate to that. I would sometimes write for people who were not my boss in politics. You know, maybe it was uh, a teacher who was going to be introducing my boss. And so I would talk to them on the phone and have to very quickly be able to kind of take what they were saying or what they wanted to say or their experience and then help them write that up. So that was something that I felt like I actually came a little bit to the writer's room with. I also, as part of the homework that I gave myself when I joined the show, in addition to watching all of the episodes, is that there were binders on the shelf at work of old episodes, script binders that included notes and the actual script and DVDs of the dailies. And I took one home every night and I read the scripts and reading the scripts and seeing how the character spoke on the page was really helpful to me. Again, really grateful to, to follow such amazing writers who'd come before me and written these iconic scripts. I will also say, as a kid, I loved television. I became deeply invested in my favorite shows and my favorite characters. And my family was always sort of last to the game with any type of technology. So I remember accusing my parents of being the last people in America to have VCR. And before we had a VCR and I could tape my favorite shows, I held up my cassette player to the TV and I audio taped my favorite TV shows. And I listened to them over and over and over, usually before going to bed. I think that that also gave me the ability to listen to how characters spoke and what made characters different from each other. And that's something that when I watched Grey's Anatomy, I would really try to hear those characters. And then now when I'm writing Grey's Anatomy, I do hear them in my head. I try my best to have it be what our showrunner hears in her head too, because that's really the goal, right? You're here as a staff writer, you're helping to pitch ideas and helping to actually write the episodes, but it's really in service of the show and the showrunner is the person who is making the overall decisions about, you know, is what you have pitched in service of the show, is what you have written in dialogue in service of the show that we're making. At the beginning of the season, we usually gather and talk about what we want to see in terms of our character arcs for multiple episodes. So for season 17, our first question was whether or not we were going to tackle COVID. And we discussed that for quite a while. And then if so, what we wanted to see in our characters. So because it's a serialized drama, 
we normally will pitch character ideas and then we'll take a look at what we're interested in. Our showrunner will weigh in and green light certain stories for certain characters. And then once we know where we're headed with our series regulars, we will map out on a board, usually the first six to eight episodes. We like to work in thirds of the season. So sometimes it depends on how many episodes we're doing. So this year, by the time I got assigned to episode four, there were already certain things in that episode that I owed. And what you normally do is you look at, okay, because of the prior episode, what things do I need to pick up? Look at those, see if there's anything thematic there, and then pitch on other stories that could also go into that same episode, either medical stories or character stories that fit that theme. In my case, with episode 1704, we knew we were going to have a character who became sick with COVID at the end of the prior episode. We knew we were going to have uh, several characters at home taking care of kids. The number one on our call sheet, Meredith Gray, actually has COVID this season. So she has three children. Somebody has to take care of those kids. We knew we were going to have the couple who had a newborn. And instead of just having their one newborn in quarantine, which is enough for most families to handle, they also had these three additional kids living with them. And then we had a new couple who met and got together at the end of the previous season that we wanted to see FaceTiming and starting this relationship and seeing that blossom over FaceTime as many people had to do during the pandemic. There were things that we as a writer's room also wanted to see in this episode. So one of the things that happened at the beginning of the season is we had various medical consultants come in and talk to us, doctors who have, were experiencing the pandemic from different perspectives. And one of our longtime consultants, Dr. Alan Hamilton, came and spoke with us about what he was seeing in the pandemic, particularly with his residents. And one of the things that he mentioned was that his Asian American residents were facing a lot of discrimination during this time, and that it was particularly challenging when they were having to come to work every day covered in PPE, watching people around them very, very sick and dying, and then getting on public transit and facing racist comments or even racism in the hospital. And I also wanted to take the opportunity to show some of the Asian American experience, whether there's COVID or not. I was trying to think about how to maybe tell the story about a medical system being designed around a standard of care that wasn't necessarily conducive to an Asian American patient getting the care that he or she needed. I had read about right-sided diverticulitis in Asian American patients two seasons before and had this little pitch in my notebook. I hadn't really seen the opportunity to pitch that for one of our episodes. One of my colleagues, who's a doctor, Zoanne Clack, encouraged me to pitch this story about how oftentimes when people come into an emergency room presenting with right-sided abdominal pain, it's usually more often than not appendicitis. And that's what a doctor will treat. But in Asian American patients, it's 10 times more likely to present on the right side. What can happen is an Asian American patient shows up in an ER, they present with right-sided pain, it's assumed to be appendicitis, and that's what they're treated for. But 
it can turn out to be diverticulitis. So you, you know, you, you want to try and get a scan to make sure when he caught that patient in the emergency room, made this decision, treated him with antibiotics, sent him home. In most cases, that would have been the right thing to do, except that this patient shows up again because he had diverticulitis. In the writer's room, we're talking about how to, how do we tell this story in the most compelling way? And we wanted it to be one of our doctors who made that mistake. And we wanted it to be a doctor who had a history of being a very competent doctor to show that it wasn't just because they were new. I really loved the idea of it being one of our doctors, Dr. Owen Hunt, who had been married to Christina Yang, Sandra O's character. What is it that we want this character, Owen Hunt, to walk away with after having this experience? He's not a bad guy. He's not a villain. He's a human being who had and showed an implicit bias the way that all of us have implicit biases. He says, look, I just want to see everybody equally. I look at all of my patients equally. I want to give them equal treatment. And Bailey, who's the chief, because it just made the most sense, says equal doesn't always work for everyone. It's really about equity. You know, we want to give every patient what they need as opposed to just treating everybody the same. It made for a more nuanced story. I think it was a little more complicated and interesting having it coming from a character who made that mistake. One of the executive producers on our show had said, hey, I think you should, if you can, you know, write in something about the Japanese internment. We were talking about a story at some point, and I had mentioned that my mom's family had been interned. And Zoanne said, you know, that's a piece of American history that I didn't know about until I was an adult. She said, I think if you can figure out a way to put that in. And, and I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, I gave that story to the patient. But in order to be able to tell it in sort of an organic way, I felt like he needed to be talking to another Japanese American person. Like this isn't something that most Japanese Americans like walk around talking about. But if he mentioned it in the context of his medical condition, not wanting to be away from his work, which was running his family's restaurant. And in order to do that, I thought like, oh, what if Mabel is revealed to be, you know, she has this Chinese last name. What if her mom's side of the family is Japanese American and she's a multi-ethnic Asian American character, which myself being a multi-ethnic Asian American person growing up. I don't remember seeing any Asian American female characters on TV, none. And there were Asian American actresses on TV occasionally. They were often playing Asian characters, like the Korean woman on MASH, that type of thing. When we went to shoot this scene with three Asian Americans, two doctors and a patient, I remember the monitor coming up and seeing all of those faces and like I started tearing up. I, I was actually like a little caught off guard by how choked up I got in that moment because there were three Asian American faces, you know, none of them, they weren't a family. They weren't related to each other. They just, you know, happened to be working coworkers and then a patient. To go from not even seeing any Asian American female TV characters anywhere to being able to be part of a show where we actually have an Asian American character who is not only a woman, but is half Chinese and half Japanese. Like I went from zero representation to seeing somebody who really was like me. And I hope that that is something that as more people become writers and as they go into writer's rooms, 
or create their own shows, that there's more opportunity to tell stories that are authentic to what people in this country or around the world are experiencing. I think that is why people become writers. And it's something that I just feel really grateful to have been able to do. Not only write about the Japanese internment, but to have Mabel say that she's gose. That, that's a word that I hadn't heard used on network television before. It means fifth generation Japanese American. Where I knew you know, it was likely to resonate for some people and to be new information to other people. And that's why I like to watch television. You know, I, it's cool to see myself represented and people like me represented, but it's also a great place to really get to know characters who aren't like you at all. On our show, the episodes are sometimes assigned based on what our showrunner feels like you might be able to handle well. So there are certain people that will get very heavy, serious shows. And I tend to get assigned lighter episodes. I wrote a Halloween episode that was really fun. I wrote an episode where several doctors accidentally eat weed cookies that a patient brings in and unknowingly gives them. I wrote a really fun, for me, rom-com-like trip to New York for two of our doctors. And then sometimes it's just your turn, which I think might have been the case a little bit with this. Again, you know, I was very interested in writing the Asian American story that was going to be in this episode. When this episode was assigned to me, there were already things in that episode box and they were just bullet points like character working from home, couple Zoom dating, flashbacks of a certain couple, anti-Asian American story. And so I get these bullet points and I'm in the room while we're breaking previous episodes. So I'm aware of what's coming down the pipeline. And I, at that point, start thinking, okay, if Meredith Grey is going to have COVID in episode three, where are we with her in episode four? And what are some ideas I have of picking up that story? And I kind of start filling out other things for the couple who's at home, the couple who is Zoom dating, so that by the time episode three is in good shape and that writer says, you know, I don't really need the room as much, I'm ready to come in with a set of ideas, questions that I can share with the room and get feedback on. Once I had beats for each story within my episode, I pitched it to our number twos and then pitched it to our showrunner, Krista Vernoff, who provided feedback at that stage, which is always really helpful because you want to get that feedback as much as you can before you get too far down the process. If she says, no, you know, I don't really like where you headed with this particular story, or thematically, I see something that's moving more in this direction, whether instead of the direction that you thought you were going in, that is all helpful to know as much as possible before you start writing, because then you're able to deliver something that's much closer to what your showrunner wants. It can't always happen that way. And also sometimes in the process, you'll all agree that this is definitely the right way to tell this story. And then once you see it on the page or you see it in the context of the other stories, you find this isn't quite working or you find something better. And one thing that's helped me with notes is that you know, as I've gone through the notes process and the revision process, I've always found that even if I'm a little resistant in my head to a note, it always makes the episode better. And then you get that back and you can start writing. Now, for me, 
my little secret is that if I feel like there's stories that we've already talked about in the writer's room and that are very likely to pretty much stay intact, I will, while the outline, I will secretly start writing a few scenes because I like to feel like I'm slightly ahead of the game. And it makes me kind of psychologically feel more prepared when I'm told, okay, you can go to script. I'm like, ooh, secretly, I already have a couple of scenes that I have banked. They may need to be changed. And that's sort of a risk, a calculated risk that I will take. You know, on the one hand, I like to be ahead. On the other hand, I sort of need to pace myself because I know that the process is just beginning and that I will go through multiple revisions, either because Megan and Andy have thoughts or our showrunner, Krista Vernoff, has changes that she wants to make to a scene or in some cases to a whole story. And so I'm kind of mentally preparing for that as well. We have two number twos. Meg Marinus and Andy Reeser. In most writers' rooms, there's a number two who oversees the room when the showrunner is off doing many of the other things that a showrunner does, whether it's working with our editorial department in post-production or approving other scripts, reading other scripts that are further in the process. You have a number two who can help guide the discussion in the writer's room or review scripts. In our case, our number twos will come into the writer's room and give feedback on where we are with our stories. And in the Grey's Anatomy writer's room, the person who is assigned the episode leads the discussion about that episode. So we're expected to come in and be able to guide that conversation because it's really about figuring out as the writer how you're going to tackle this episode and getting it to a place where you can pitch it. I have kind of a crazy process. Here's how it works. I start with an overall assumption. For example, this character is going to be working from home. He has COVID. He's asymptomatic. He's going to be restless and he's going to build a pandemic model while he's sitting there. And that was something that we had kind of already talked about We had one of our chief consultants for the show, Dr. Alan Hamilton, talk about how he built a pandemic model and he used a zombie game that he reconfigured to create a model of the pandemic. That was something that jumped out at us as really interesting, but also fun. And we thought, what if this character who tests positive for COVID and has to quarantine at home, what if this is what he does while he's stuck there? With this general idea of him converting this zombie game and maybe having an intern who plays that zombie game and is like, oh, I'm in, you know, let's figure this out together. But he is a world-renowned neurosurgeon and he's like, I don't really necessarily want help from an intern or a second-year resident. I think I've got this, but also he's stuck at home and nobody else is coming to see him. So you know, I'll come in with a general idea, ask the room questions. What do you think? I really like feedback, first of all, because I work with a lot of really smart writers. A lot of times in kicking around, somebody will say something really funny. I will take note of that. Our amazing writer's assistants will take notes in the room. That's basically like a transcript. And then at the end of each day, I will print out those notes Sometimes it's 20 pages, sometimes it's 30 pages, sometimes it's more. 
And then I will read those notes after we wrap the room. I will have different color pens for each character or for each story. I will have a different color pen and then I will annotate the notes every night. And then based on my annotations, I might say like, oh, this was a funny line or, oh, this was a better way of getting into this character's turn, or here's a really interesting concept, but now I have a question about that pitch that somebody else had. So I will update that little paragraph that I had originally come into the room with, and suddenly it goes from three sentences about that story to 10 sentences about that story, plus three questions that I wanna ask the room the next day. Then I show up the next day and I ask those questions, we talk more, and now there's more notes from that night. And you just repeat the process over and over. And I go from having you know, three sentences about that story to a paragraph that's a beginning, middle, and end about that story to bullet points that feel like beats that turn into slightly more fleshed out scene beats for those stories where we actually have a slug and I can kind of start visualizing where that scene is going to take place. Sometimes I will have dialogue if there's a funny joke that somebody said that I don't want to forget or that I think of as I'm rereading the notes. A lot of times those notes for me are a way of jogging things out of my brain or shaking things out of my brain that are just really helpful. So I live and die by those writer's room notes and I am really thankful that we have such amazing writer's assistants. My dad, he's very methodical. He has this saying that is, first you have to plan the work and then you can work the plan. And again, as much as I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm in a creative environment, I still have that engineer's daughter in me and I plan my work and then I work my plan. It really does help me have the mentality of I can get through this. All I have to do is check off these 10 things on my to-do list today. And those 10 things might be scenes 28, 42, whatever it is. I just do them and check them off. And eventually I have a script. When it's time to write the episode in a kind of crazy methodical way, I will count the number of scenes and I will know I have X number of days and I will take the number of scenes that I have to write and I will divide that by X number of days and that is how many I need to write a day. As I'm kind of wading into the episode, it will also make me feel better if I can have as many scenes as I can completed. I tend to start with the scenes that are either shorter or where I have very heavily outlined that scene and I know exactly how I'm going to get in and out of it. Or I have a joke that I'm really excited about and I can easily write the scene around that joke. Or I sort of pick the low-hanging fruit and I do that first. It's a great way to sort of, even though you're diving into the script as a whole, you're sort of wading in a little more gently. And then I also feel good about, you know, oh, I was able to do that X number of scenes that I knew I needed to get done that day in order to stay on track to finish within that amount of time. By the way, when I'm looking at how many scenes I have, I also add in the voiceover because all of our episodes start and end with a voiceover, usually by Meredith Grey, our main character. I also factor in time to review 
the last day that I'm writing scenes will usually be fewer scenes because I will also want to print out the script and read it down before I turn it in. You know, with every script, it's funny. It's usually I have time between episodes, right? You write a couple a season and then there's months in between. And during those months, sometimes I'm like, can I, can I do this again? There's like that little, you know, voice in my head that's like, wait a minute. I know I've done this before. I'm not sure if I can do it again. And then you're like, I guess I just have to. It's kind of like if you haven't gone swimming in a while and then you're like, I guess I'm just jumping in. My timeline will expand to fit however much time I am given. So if I know I have, you know, a few weeks to write a script, which did happen to me one time I was assigned a script and I was sent off to script over our winter break. And I had a couple of weeks to just write. And that was amazing to be able to do like a couple of scenes a day, as opposed to 10 or 13 scenes a day was just this huge luxury. But I'll expand or contract and to fit whatever timeline I have. You know, sometimes you're given overnight. I'm not a person who works very well with all-nighters. I want to be useful the next day as well. And so I will try and preserve my ability to sleep some. Sometimes it's like, okay, you have a couple of hours or overnight or a day or two days. And sometimes you have a little bit more time because you're slightly ahead of schedule. That doesn't happen that often when you're making you know, 22 or 25 episodes of television as we've done. And also it kind of depends on where we are in the season. If you have an earlier episode, one of the benefits of that is you have a while to think about it before production starts, as opposed to if you get assigned one of the later episodes, which I've, you know, I've written those two and you're kind of on this like very fast moving merry-go-round by the end. And it's like, come on, we got to just like, you know, hurry up and write yours and you have less time. One of the drawbacks about getting assigned an early episode in the season is that oftentimes it takes us a little while to figure out what that season premiere is going to look like and then what the like kind of the tone of this season is going to be or the theme for this season if there there is one like you know that you're going to write one of the early episodes but you also don't know how much is going to change between talking about the premiere and when you're going to start talking about your episode. I have always been a person, even like in high school or college, who liked to finish the assignment the night before it's due so that I could sleep on it and then get up the next morning and review it. So even if I know the episode is due the following morning and I could spend all night writing it, I like to be done by a reasonable time the night before so that I can sleep on it, get up early the next morning, review it one time before I hit the send button. And there's always like that little moment of trepidation where I'm like, am I sending the right version of this? Did I clean it up as best as possible? And then at some point I just sort of hold my breath and I I click send. I try really hard not to open and look at it again, but inevitably I do. And inevitably I find something that I want to change or I find a typo, I'll note it. And then I will change it when I get my notes back. When I'm waiting to get notes back, it can be a little bit nerve wracking. You're waiting, you're wondering, is this going to be a heavy rewrite? Is it, you know, what kind of notes am I going to get back? You know, are there things that I should have anticipated? And then I'm going to be like, ah, I knew I should have gone that direction. But by the time you turn it into Krista, your number twos have already 
reviewed it and helped you make it better. And hopefully, you know, you're in pretty good shape. So you're kind of all in it together waiting. When I got notes back from Krista, it was via email and there was a page of notes, some really small things, you know, change this line or here's an idea for this little story. And then embedded in this page of notes was a couple of lines that said, I think that because Meredith Gray is in bed with COVID, we are going to want to open your show up a little bit more. And a way to do that would be to have her go to the beach, which in this season was kind of Meredith Gray's happy place where she saw and spoke with other characters, some of whom were from her past. And so there was this note from Krista that said, you know, I think we're going to want to have Meredith because she's in bed we're going to want to see her in a more open space like the beach. And I'm thinking for your episode, George. Is she telling me that I'm going to get the character of George who had died in season five slash six? I'm going to get him in my episode. Like it took me a while to process what that note was. And then I wrote back to her and I was like, are you kidding me? Krista had written scenes for these characters that were returning and George was one of them. So the scenes had already been done. We had kept under wraps. She wrote back and said, by the way, I think that when we shoot these scenes, we'll have a day with TR Knight, plays George, on the beach. We might have time to do one more if you can come up with a very satisfying George scene. And I was like, okay, no pressure. But if I can come up with something satisfying, I can write a George scene. Now I have to set aside time to figure that out. My process is very methodical. And normally what I would do is I would print out Chris's email and annotate that with my checklist, right? So I'll boil down a whole paragraph of, you know, here's a way to do the story. And I might have one bullet point that's like, okay, make this change to these two scenes. And then I will take all those notes and I will figure out how much time I have to do those notes and then create a plan. And in this particular case, I think I was given the notes on a Thursday night. So I like sort of had Friday and then the weekend and I was going to turn them back in Monday. So I took all the notes and I was like, okay, you know, I have three days essentially to do all of them, including kind of reconfiguring one whole storyline. I set aside of those three days, I set aside one day to do that whole scene. It was a Saturday. <laughs> I had been thinking about what would make a really satisfying George scene. I mean, I really, really thought about it. And I had during the pandemic, like many people, I had started a rewatch of Grey's Anatomy during the pandemic from episode one, like many people did, and was just planning to kind of watch one a day. And, and now I was like, oh, this is going to pay off. So in my head, I was like, I really want to write a great scene. What should that be about? And I kind of, you know, started jotting down ideas. Like what if it was, you know, her Meredith talking about whether, you know, does she go back? And then I went back and looked because Krista had already written these amazing scenes where, you know, the characters were covering a ton of ground in a really light banter kind of way. And they covered heavy things like, you know, Meredith's life is sort of hanging in the balance. She's in this weird in-between space where she's seen this friend who she knows is dead. And yet they're moving through all these topics like, do I get to choose whether I go back in a really light, kind of enjoyable as a viewer way? And then I realized Krista had covered a lot of ground in like 
you know, a th- something that I was like, oh, maybe I could do a scene about this. I'm like, nope, Krista covered it in two lines because she's just that kind of amazing writer. And then I was like, what else could I cover? And I started thinking, if I had the chance to talk to uh, a dead friend or family member, what is it that I would want out of that conversation? And I think that it's, I'd want to tie up a loose end that I didn't get a chance to do while that person was alive. What unfinished business might there have been between George and Meredith, who had a long history on the show? I went back and watched a ton of episodes. I kind of sought out episodes that particularly had a storyline together or, you know, had a big story point in the season. And then I watched the episode where George gets hit by a bus and ultimately dies. Very end of that episode is this really beautiful, haunting voiceover. Meredith says, did you say it? I love you. I don't ever want to live without you. You changed my life. And and the line, you changed my life, is while Meredith is in George's OR, standing over his body, we don't know if he's going to live or die. And I thought, I think I know what, what she needs to say to him. I sat down, spent the whole day writing this scene where they're talking and Meredith is asking George if he's had regrets. And she ends that scene by saying, you went all in for your patients and your family and friends. That influenced me. And then she gets to say, you changed my life, George. I didn't say it then, but it's true. I was really excited to be able to make that nod to this episode that so many people watched and that was you know, so important in the canon of our show. And I also laid in my own voiceover where Meredith says, find your people and keep them close. And that was also a nod to that iconic line from earlier seasons where Christine tells Meredith, you're my person. It's actually hard for me to express like what it meant to be able to write that scene and to be able to contribute something of my own to that story. I was really grateful to Krista to have given me George for this episode. One of the tasks that I was given on this episode was that we had shot some scenes before we shut down for the pandemic in the previous season that we were hoping to use because we had two characters who in the last scene kissed for the first time. And we had that already shot from the previous season. That's something that we couldn't really do once COVID started. And so I was given the task of figuring out how can we use this footage? In our season premiere, we had used some of it in flashback, but we were thinking, could we use this in present day? And how would we do that? And here was the big challenge for me is like this episode happened and there was sort of an overnight scene where these two characters were going to have like a friend hangout that then, you know, she sleeps on his couch and he sleeps upstairs in his room. And then in the morning, they would somehow like have this sudden kiss. <laughs> the way that it was originally scripted was that she came over to his house, dropped something off. They had previously sort of had a first go at this and it didn't work out. And so she comes over, she's about to drop something off. And then she's like, I'm just going to do this. And she grabs him and kisses him. She's sitting fully clothed, like in a jacket, because she had just come over. She has her purse next to her. 
She's sitting at a bar. It's daytime. He is also fully dressed, like with shoes on and ready to go out. But now in the way that this scene falls in this storyline, they have spent overnight, like she's on the couch and he had gone up to stairs to go to sleep. Now I have to have them like fully dressed for this kiss, like, like they had just come from outside. So that was a little bit of a challenge. And we figured out, you know, how to do that, where it's like, oh, maybe he's, he's called the concierge to have breakfast. And that's why he's dressed. Like he's going to go down to pick up the, the breakfast that he had delivered. And then maybe she's like packed up because she's got to go to work. So she's already all dressed by the time he comes down to do that. And then, you know, somehow she's left her purse in this area by the bar overnight. And so she gets there. <laughs> I give huge kudos to our editorial staff who figured out, well, first of all, you know, Allison Liddy Brown, super experienced director, figured out how to make all that kind of real estate happen logistically. And then very talented editorial team, Jason Joseph, who edited this episode, figured out a way to make all of that work and to make it look seamless. It was fun to tackle. One of the things that I thought early on when I first started writing was that as I got better and as I got more experience as a writer, that I would need to do less revising, <laughs> which is just like when I think about it now, I think, wow, that, that's so naive, especially because my process, as I've come to discover, is so iterative. The revision process is just part of the process of writing. It's not, oh, you write and then you revise. It's like revising is part of the writing process, whether I'm writing an episode of Grey's Anatomy, whether I'm writing stuff for myself. That's something that I came to learn. I'm working with a showrunner and number twos who have done this way longer than I have and who have been on Grey's Anatomy way longer than I have. And so, of course, they're going to have ideas that will make my episode better even if I'm not sure how I'm going to address their notes right away, that's usually where the resistance comes from. It's like, I see what you're saying, but I just spent all this time figuring out how to get this story. And now I have to pivot and figure out how to address this note. In a couple of days, that is a little bit daunting. It's from a place of, oh, shoot, can I actually figure that out? Hopefully I get faster at it. I feel like I have gotten better and faster at it over the seasons that I've been on the show, but I think more experienced writers, I watch them and they're able to turn it around really quickly. And I'm really excited for the day that I feel more comfortable when those kinds of notes are given. <laughs> In terms of notes, I feel like our process at Grays is really iterative. So you know, you'll be breaking your stories in the room. You'll get feedback from the number twos then. You might get some feedback because you know showrunners popped in and, and given her feedback or outside of the room, the number twos have run things by the showrunner and then you get that feedback. So I feel like the notes process is a little bit never ending. One of the milestones where you often get you know a whole new set of notes is after the table read. We'll do a writer's table read where the writers will gather, we'll read the script aloud. That helps us to see kind of what stories are working on a really basic level. You'll get feedback from your showrunner at that point. You'll make revisions. And then a new draft will come out. At some point, the cast will gather and they'll read your script. It's really the only time that you'll get to hear the whole script read by the cast from start to finish, right? Because when you're shooting, it's not like everybody's there for the whole show. So this is your chance to hear how the show is going to sound more closely or closer to what it's going to look like when it airs. 
We did our reads on Zoom this year, which always presents a, a different set of challenges. But after the table read, you'll also get a whole new set of notes based on you know things that we saw. Sometimes you'll get a sense of like how much over time we are, whether we need to make serious cuts to the script. One of the things on this particular script that happened at the table read is because the return of the character George was kept under wraps, the other actors and people involved, a lot of people involved with the show didn't know that he was coming back. And so we put out a version of the script that said Thatcher, Meredith's dad, in lieu of George. And actually, when Krista sent me the script back, she said, I love that scene with George, but for the purposes of distributing the script, I have disguised it. Then I went back and looked and, you know, she had made all of the George scenes, scenes with Thatcher Gray, Meredith's father, who's also dead on our show. And she had written a fake last scene that was so good. The scene that took me a full Saturday to write, she had clearly written like a fake version of that in like minutes. <laughs> Again, amazing. So we go to the table read and off that, we'll get another set of notes. And then, you know, you try and turn that around as quickly as possible. Sometimes the table read is only a day or two prior to starting filming. And so you want to turn those notes around as quickly as possible so that actors have time to prepare. And in some cases, if we're, you know, making changes to the sets or that will require costume changes, you want to give props and, and other departments the opportunity to prepare those as well. On Grey's Anatomy, the writers are on set to help produce the episode. We're basically there representing the writing staff and our showrunner. We're the ones who have been involved in the episodes before, the episodes after. The director is typically somebody who's brought in. And in my case, I was so excited when I found out that Allison Liddy Brown would be directing my episode. She's someone who's directed many episodes of television, but definitely other episodes of Grey's Anatomy. I had gotten to meet her briefly at a table read the previous season. And in the back of my head, I had always hoped that I would get to write a script that she directed. And then it happened with this episode. As the writer, you're there sitting next to the script supervisor and the director, in this case, socially distanced and wearing a lot of PPE. But you know, you're there because you were there during the writing of the script. You're there also to help provide continuity of story. So like I might know that this thing that seems a little weird or out of character in this episode is going to come around in the next episode or two episodes later, or this is the beginning of a story arc for somebody, or it might be the opposite. You know, you know that three seasons ago, this character, there was something that happened in this character said or did that's sort of coming back around in this episode. And we don't want to miss that line. Or here's why, even though this sounds like a heavier scene that it's really lighter because these two characters are joking around or always joke with each other or have some sort of history that goes back. So you're there to kind of answer those types of questions. There's also sort of the practical issue of like broadcast standards and practices has reviewed this script. And one of the reasons they were able to let this line go was because, you know, you adjusted it to be these exact words. So you know this exact medical description has been reviewed by broadcast standards and practices, and we kind of need to say it that exact way. As writers, we also go through all the prep meetings 
once your script is complete, you enter this period of prep where each department head is going through the process of figuring out what they need, how to make their contribution to this episode. So you'll meet with the costumes department and have those conversations. On our show, a lot of the questions are, is this person in scrubs or streets? In season 17, a lot of the questions are also about PPE. What type of PPE is this character wearing? What are they allowed to wear? When they walk out of the hospital, can they remove their PPE? You'll work with props. Our medical department is amazing and they need time to create the blood or the heart or to get the machine that you're using. So they need time to work through all of that. There are a lot of meetings where the department heads will come together and sort of work out like, is this a costume? Is this a props thing? Is this a medical props thing? And you want to work out as much of that in advance as possible so that when you're there on stage with the actors and you know the props in hand or the costume on or the set decorated, that all of those questions as much as possible have been worked out so that you can just get to rehearsing and shooting that scene. It takes a lot longer, I think, than than viewers or even writers who haven't been on set think to shoot one one minute scene or 90 second scene can take hours to film. And so the preparation is really crucial. Our our departments are pretty amazing and what they can pull together. They've got a lot of experience doing this on a show that's been going for 17 seasons. So in some ways it's easier because they have a process for that. They know what they're doing. They know how to work together. And then, you know, in some ways it can be a challenge because it's like, oh, you know, how do we make this different from what we've seen before? Or in some cases, how do we make this the same as what we've seen before? And and we have to match that. I am sort of famous for writing pizza into my episodes. So here's a hot tip. If you write food into the episode, that food will show up on set. It doesn't work in COVID. Like the two characters who are hanging out overnight order pizza and sushi. And then it was pointed out to me, Julie, you do realize that in COVID, you will not be able to eat the pizza or the sushi. Also, who wants to eat sushi that's been sitting on set all day? So, you know, I'm still learning in that area too. (laughs) You know, the first episode that I wrote featured two characters laughing while eating and I had written in a bag of popcorn and props came to me at one of the meetings and said, is it okay with you if this is a bowl of popcorn? And I was like, yeah, I don't care. Right. I had just written a bag of popcorn. Cause that's what a lot of people you know, throw in the microwave and talking to them. I realized like, Oh, here's why they're asking. It's because if it's a microwave bag of popcorn, they have to make that they have to figure out, you know, a brand that they can put on it that is not real so that it passes legal standards. They have to make it out of a certain kind of fabric so that it doesn't crinkle as they're reaching their hand into the bag. And obviously you don't want to be hampered creatively in the storytelling because you're working around a prop, but if it doesn't make any difference, then why not think that through also? This is the greatest job. I get to sit in a room every day with really smart people and talk about stories that we want to tell and have fun and get work done at the same time. I love working with everybody on this show. There are so many talented people that I love collaborating with, whether it's, you know, figuring out how we're going to build this set. Like we built a COVID ICU for this season. And when I walked onto that set for the first time, I was like, 
whoa, this is amazing. You know, like everything is still new and fresh and fun to me. I find everything to be a challenge and interesting and delightful. I mean, everything is so cool. The props, amazing. I learned from every person on our show. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.